Welcome to The American Ingredient, a podcast that examines race in American society from an academic perspective. Focusing on the work from social scientists and legal scholars, The American Ingredient demonstrates that race is not the only ingredient in making America, but in order to make America, you need two heaping spoonfuls. Even though much of the work in the social sciences examines contemporary problems and events, there's an ever-growing number of social scientists who have turned to events in the past to help explain many of the current issues we face. These scholars have looked to history to test theories about contemporary issues, but also to shed new light on historical events. In this episode, I talked to Professor Trevon D. Logan, the Hazel C. Youngberg Distinguished Professor of Economics at The Ohio State University. As an economic historian, Professor Logan used the theories and tools of the economics discipline to illuminate the Black experience and correct several misconceptions. My conversation with Professor Logan focuses on his work regarding the effectiveness of Black elected officials during Reconstruction, along with his work on trends in Black names. We begin the episode with Professor Logan discussing what it means to be an economic historian. I think economic history is uh, somewhat hard to define. And mm-hmm. even when I teach economic history courses, I always spend a section about a week to say what is economic history. I think there are a lot of different perspectives that people have on what economic history is. So some people think that economic history is the ability to test economic models using history is essentially a laboratory to test economic theories. And other people think that economic history is quantifying and estimating relationships that have been assumed to exist from the historical narrative. Mm -hmm. And still others view it as really a combination of quantitative techniques and narrative evidence to tell stories from the historical past. I think all three of those are valid Mm -hmm. definitions of economic history. And I think what we see in the field is a movement more from one to the other. I think the current model that's in vogue is to view history as a laboratory to test economic uh, theory. That has advantages and disadvantages Mm -hmm. relative to the other two uh, approaches, but I think that is what perhaps the majority of economic historians would say that they're doing uh, today. All right. And where would you place yourself in this regard? I think I'm probably someone who does a little bit more of the third, which is to use quantitative evidence and narrative evidence to try to uncover stories from the American past. I think, one, I think it's rather limited to think that history should respond to or be put into the service of economic theory that Mm -hmm. comes today, especially when we consider the relatively homogeneous nature of people who make up the economics profession, and particularly those who contribute new economic theory. So we have to provide a bit more context uh, if we're going to do something more original than that. Mm -hmm. And I think actually add a little bit more more value. Um, I think the scope should be a little bit larger. So that's what I try to do in my work. Okay. Within your work, you focus on the 19th century. And this latest project you have focuses on uh, the effectiveness of black politicians during Reconstruction. Can you tell us a little more about that? Yeah. So this project is an offshoot of some work I've been sort of 
stuck on the 19th century for a while mm-hmm. now and really considering racial issues in the 19th century. And it's taken me to a lot of different directions, doing work on segregation, doing work on black names, doing work on antebellum uh, slave marriage patterns, uh, doing work now on intergenerational mobility and segregation, um, doing work now on public accommodations. And the black politicians sort of fell into my lap as Mm -hmm. something that's been missing. And I was shocked when I first began thinking about the effect that black politicians could have had on public finance and on the provision of public goods, that this was really an unexplored topic in economic history. Um, We have a lot of literature on the slave economy and the antebellum era um, from both economic historians and I would say traditional historians Uh, especially those now concerned with the history of capitalism. And we have a lot of work on the Jim Crow era, so Mm -hmm. say post-1890 on in the South, and then a lot of work on Great Migration, et cetera. But, you know, 1865 to 1880 in particular, maybe up to 1890, are relatively unexplored areas in economic history um, for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. And uh, when I first started in this area, I just really wanted to answer the very basic question. You know, we do have these issues of what do politicians do? And then I was really interested in what do black politicians do? And starting down that road and then realizing that I could actually attempt to estimate that relationship as best that we could of the causal effect of black politicians on public finance at really a critical time in in this nation's history. And I think people now are talking about reconstruction in a way that I've been thinking about for the last, uh, say, five to seven years since I've been, you know, really getting started on this project. And so it's interesting to see now, particularly with the dynamics of the last presidential election, people really thinking about racial politics mm-hmm. and people thinking about black office holders and people thinking about public attitudes towards black politicians. Those were much more salient in the Reconstruction era. And so reading those histories and seeing these things happen um, again, uh, as somebody would say, it's happened again for the first time in American politics, made me think that we really needed to establish the record for these politicians quantitatively Mm -hmm. um, to honestly rehabilitate them in Mm -hmm. the historical narrative. It is interesting that you talk about rehabilitating them in in the historical narrative. How do you believe they've been treated in the historical narrative? It's changed over time, but uh, it has not been quantified. So one of the first things we know is if you're coming out of the Dunning tradition, so Dunning was really one of the first histories of Reconstruction that we have. Um, Very similar for those who are historians, uh, similar to Phillips, sort of, in in the antebellum uh, economy. And Dunning viewed Reconstruction as a failure, And I think for the majority of the scholarship since Dunning, although it's recently certainly been overturned, um, people view Reconstruction as a failure. The Dunning Professor Logan is referring to is William Archibald Dunning, an American historian and political scientist whose work on Reconstruction dominated how scholars interpreted it during the early part of the 20th century. Dunning and his followers argued that black enfranchisement was a failure and that black politicians elected during this period were either corrupt or incompetent. D.W. Griffith's Birth of a Nation reflects this sentiment in a scene where he paints black legislators as corrupt and free blacks as preying on white women. The film further goes on to paint the Ku Klux Klan as the saviors of the South by chasing out these corrupt officials. Eric Foner, a historian, who is a strong critic of the Dunning School, argues that Dunning's work helped justify Jim Crow and protected the South from criticisms of taking the vote away from blacks. 
Scholars such as W.B. Du Bois and E. Franklin Frazier were critical in mounting a rebuttal of Dunning and his followers, arguing that the failure of Reconstruction was not the incompetence of black elected officials, but the federal government's lack of commitment to racial equality. In his classic work, Black Reconstruction, Du Bois notes that the empowerment during Reconstruction provided great promise and its demise was a tragic defeat for democracy. Now, Reconstruction did not achieve its goals, mm. um, but the reasons for that were very different, say, if you're coming out of the Dunning tradition. And the reasons were that it was not meant for the South. We shouldn't have had enfranchisement of African-Americans. We certainly shouldn't have had political representation by African-Americans, and that this was the reason for that failure. And that's been overturned. So starting with Du Bois and Black Reconstruction, we know that Black politicians were active. They were not all corrupt and, and unfit for office. But we went um, and have developed that, but it hasn't been quantified, mm -hmm. uh, their effectiveness and what they've actually done and whether they were effective or more effective than other politicians. So what have you found in your examination of Black politicians during this time period? So I find that they have really large uh, effects in, in a couple of different ways. One effect is I found that they have a large causal effect on the provision of public goods. So mm -hmm. we do see uh, larger uh, tax revenues in places where they're holding um, office and, and very sizable effects of that. And then we have to wonder, do these taxes do anything other than just raise taxes? And I find really large effects on um, school enrollment for both black and white students, but in particular, human capital acquisition for, for African-Americans and a closing of the literacy gap between blacks and whites in areas where black politicians were serving in office. Okay, so in regards to taxes, how exactly were the taxes taking shape in, in order to raise the revenue to provide these resources? So taxes at the county level uh, historically were largely coming from two sources. Uh, one is taxes on land uh, and property taxes and uh, other real uh, assets. The second, you had some excise taxes, but very, very small at the, at the county level. The second were poll taxes uh, that were a significant source of local, local revenue. And uh, I can't um, disentangle between the very different effects. Some of that is idiosyncratic and lost to us in the historical record. But I do find substantial increases in uh, even controlling for land values. You know, you do find larger tax receipts in those areas and controlling for population. So larger tax rates right. probably have been the mechanism for, for having larger receipts. Okay. Now, you've talked about the response to black politicians. How would you describe the response to black politicians during Reconstruction Whereas you think of them as providing more resources, but they're also collecting more resources. So how should we understand uh, the nature of the relationship between uh, black politicians during Reconstruction and their black and white constituents? I think the issue is what level of constituent service you're providing and to what constituents you're providing that service. So taxes are redistributive and that's what taxes do. Taxes mm -hmm. are redistributive. Um, at least in the American uh, sense, or most taxes are redistributive. Some taxes are regressive, um, but these taxes would have been redistributive taxes. Just a quick note for clarification. A regressive tax is a tax applied uniformly, taking a larger percentage of income from low-income earners than from high-income earners. A regressive tax is in opposition to a progressive tax, which takes a larger percentage from higher-income earners. Examples of regressive taxes are things such as sales taxes and property taxes, along with user fees. 
These types of taxes and fees impact lower income individuals more severely than those with higher incomes because the tax takes up a larger share of their income. Most taxes are redistributive. Some taxes are regressive, um, but these taxes would have been redistributive taxes. And so you had a, a Southern economy and Southern politics at the time that needed to provide public goods in an environment in which certainly in the antebellum era, very few public goods were provided. Mm. So how do you start and finance a public school system? You're going to have to do that by raising taxes. How do you improve infrastructure that's been decimated by a civil war? You need to raise taxes. How do you provide humanitarian aid for those who are um, widowed, sick, and infirm from a very long uh, civil war? You're going to need to raise taxes to do that. And so you're going to have to have public receipt for these goods because the government is going to have to step in and provide them and provide those services. So how can we explain or do you have an explanation for why the Dunning approach kind of painted as a failure, kind of painted the uh, elected officials as corrupt, but you begin to see a, a quick rebuttal to this? Is this specifically coming from black scholars, so uh, Du Bois and, and Franklin, how was there something driving this interpretation of Reconstruction that led people to see it as a failure? I think there are a lot of things that were driving that. You know, I gave um, an address at, it must have been Dartmouth a couple of years ago, mm. actually about the history of slavery and Reconstruction. You, you can never think about Reconstruction without thinking about what comes before and also think about Reconstruction and what comes after. Yeah. So if you're writing a history of Reconstruction, when are you writing it? So if you're coming out with Dunning and you're looking at the beginning of the 20th century and you're looking at the South as economically more bound, certainly relative to the North, not participating into the great ascension. Professor Logan is referring to a more abundant economy, and this is referred to as a dying economy or economy that is in a very unhealthy state. And this is classically be understood as the South pre and post Reconstruction, as the South was mainly an agrarian economy and was unable to industrialize. And so because of that, its economy was somewhat stagnant or in a very unhealthy state at the South as economically more bound, certainly relative to the North, not participating into the great ascension of America uh, in the 20th century. And you wonder what's going on and you have to and you might be thinking, well, this is just how the South has always been. It's important to understand that Dunning comes after Phillips, right? Mm -hmm. Phillips is writing about American slavery. And he says American slavery is an inefficient institution. It leaves the South economically more bound. And it's the South as we've always thought of it, which is backward to the rest of the nation. All of that has to be revised. And I think it's really important for people to understand this stuff doesn't happen in a vacuum. Mm -hmm. One of the things now that the history of capitalism is reckoning with which the economic history of slavery is always reckoned with, is slavery is not this more bound institution. The South was literally one of the wealthiest places on the face of the earth circa 1860. Even taking into account the fact that it had uh, a large number of people who were not participating and certainly direct beneficiaries of that economic mm -hmm. <laughs> ascension, they were still the wealthiest place on the one of the wealthiest places on the face of the earth. Mm -hmm. That overturns a whole lot of what we think about the South. And then we have to think about, well, what, how does Reconstruction figure into that? Reconstruction was an attempt to politically and economically realign the South, but Southern institutions had developed predicated on an extreme amount of inequality. 
And we see that pers- you know, persistent to this day. Mm-hmm. Um, recent work that comes out looking at intergenerational mobility has shown that the South is just a place where there is really low levels of intergenerational mobility and high levels of inequality. That is a Southern perennial. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have anything to do with the level, but it says something about the distribution. And I think it says something about the politics and the political economy of those places as well. But then we take that fact and we try to fit that into this mold of, well, that just means these places have been backwards. And that isn't necessarily always the case. That does, that does mean that they have not been industrial. Mm-hmm. But I also think that it does not mean that the South was unfit for capitalism. Yes. You know, the, the slave system was a capitalist system and it was highly successful. Doesn't work so well when you do away with slavery as an institution, <laughs> leaves yeah. it pretty poor. And then you have a political economy that was created for one particular type of economic institution, which now has to realign itself and reimagine itself in a new reality. Mm-hmm. That's been the difficulty for understanding the South. It isn't a feature of the slave economy that made the South economically more abundant, that the South could not adapt to a free labor system. If you read the histories of Reconstruction and if you read them from looking at, say, been in the storm so long and these other sorts of narrative histories, Southerners, white Southerners, could not imagine a free labor market. It just was beyond them. Now, these are intense capitalists, right? Mm -hmm. They believe in property ownership. They believe in property ownership and slaves and property ownership and land and property ownership and a lot of things. They could not fathom how to deal with a free labor market. Their original ideas included things such as importing um, Chinese immigrants to work as slaves, right? Mm-hmm. We, can, we can't have black slaves. Okay, fine. Then we're going to get some Chinese slaves. I mean, literally, these are the, some of the things that they're thinking about, which shows you that they really just did not want to work with free market capitalism. I think some of those ideas continue to persist to this day in Southern politics. I don't think that they've been called that appropriately Mm -hmm. uh, the way that they should be, but those are some of the ideas. You see that with the strong resistance, say, to unions in certain parts of the country. You see that with strong resistance to the provision of public goods. You'll see that with strong resistance to um, strong protection of voting rights. These are perennial effects from a part of the world uh, in the United States that has just had long-standing resistance Mm -hmm. to true democratic institutions. So 150 years later, it's still deeply, it's basically in the soil. um, And it's something that just cannot seem to be rooted out. It's there, and I think it shows up in a lot of different ways. And you're you're a political scientist, so you know the ways it shows up in politics better than I do, certainly. But I think it shows up. I think it shows up in the way that politics marries with Mm -hmm. religion in Mm -hmm. in the South. Um, This belief and this worship of a very particular type of free market capitalism Mm -hmm. that is not really designed for... It, it, it just has a different function than we would see in other parts of the world. And yet these places are also relative to other parts in the United States, poor. Yes. So there's a strong belief, for example, that very level, low levels of taxes will lead to prosperity. They've had relatively low levels of taxes for quite some time. Relative to many other states in the United States, they also receive more federal resources than what they send to the federal government. So they are, receive net subsidies, say, from the federal government still has not had the prosperity uh, that they have preached. The places that are actually wealthier in the United States have many, much higher taxes. How does that work? And I yeah. think, you know, so what what is going to break that logic, which still I think has some, some element of intuitive appeal, but mm-hmm. has not been borne out to have empirical support? 
One of the things that your work notes is this connection between taxes and violence. In particular, you note that a rise in taxes is linked to a rise in violence towards black elected officials. Could you explain this some more? Yeah, so in, in some new work, what I have found is that the places that have black politicians had higher taxes. Mm-hmm. And then higher taxes still, if you see places that have black politicians who are also met with violence. So aggressive taxation was stamped out. Mm-hmm. But the most aggressive taxation appears to have been met with violence for those black office holders. Now, this is still very preliminary and, and, and certainly work in progress, but I think it's consistent with the violence that was had to be held at the end of the Reconstruction era. So this was not a revolution that was a quiet one. Mm-hmm. It was one that was a violent one. I still think that story has yet to be told. But we see those persistent effects. I've really been... Um, quite impressed as a recent working paper uh, by uh, Jacoba Williams, uh, who was at LSU. Mm-hmm. She'll be moving to Clemson University uh, in the fall to start an assistant professor position. And she has looked at persistent effects of racial violence on voting patterns. And so I think that the seeds of a lot of the things that we talk about today in mm-hmm. our politics, which would include, you know, these, you know, are the persistent effects of the of this political violence, I think is an open question that that will soon be answered. But I think we see lots of evidence now that racial violence, racialized violence, and racial oppression have persistent effects to this day. And these are events that happened many, many, many years ago. And we still see persistent effects on our political outcomes and economic outcomes to this day. You mentioned how you're kind of challenging the I guess, historical account of Reconstruction. And you're part of this larger group of people who are basically uh, trying to reframe the way in which you understand Reconstruction. As an economist, is there anything in particular that your work does that challenges existing arguments within economics? Yeah, a couple of things. I'll give one example. So there's a lot of literature now, uh, especially from a very famous paper, um, that looked at black names on resumes. Mm-hmm. And then there was some follow-up work that found, well, maybe there really aren't these effects to, to black names and maybe they're sort of effects that um, don't really have long durations. Maybe you do see them in resume audit studies, but you don't see them if you look at, say, birth certificate effects. Mm-hmm. But all of that was predicated on this belief that black names are essentially a basically a late 20th century phenomenon. When mm-hmm. I say late 20th century, say coming from the 1970s, a post-civil rights uh, yes. movement, black names. And when I say black names, um, I, and people say, what do you mean by black names? Black names that are highly likely to be held by African-Americans and not likely to be held by whites. Mm-hmm. Um, my joke to my friends is, well, you know, we just had the NFL draft. So look at a lot of the names that you see a lot of these players have that they called out NFL draft or highly likely to be, you know, I don't know that many white Deshaun's. Yeah. Um, and almost all the Deshaun's I know are black, right? So that's a black name. So one of the, and this is a typical economist folly, is to say we see these black names. Certainly we don't see in the historical record a lot of Latanyas. Mm-hmm. So that probably is something that would be contemporary. But that isn't an answer to the question of whether black names existed in the past. And so with some co-authors, Lisa Cook at Michigan State and John Parman at William & Mary, we found that black names actually do have historical precedence. And we found a black naming pattern among black men in the early 20th century. But it's a different set of names. Mm -hmm. These names are biblical names like Moses and Abraham, other names like Percy, Pearly, King, Master, Titus. These are also names that are just as disproportionate Mm -hmm. uh, historically as names like 
Tyrone mm-hmm. and Jamal and Lakeisha today. And so black names have a history. And now it becomes a much more interesting question, which is why did these names change as opposed to how did these names come about? Mm-hmm. Right. So it's a very different process and we have a much different narrative if it's now black names have come about from the civil rights movement, which is what people had assumed, mm-hmm. to now black names are actually a cultural feature yep. of the African-American community that's been longstanding and the names have changed. That's a very different story that we now have to tell. And that's been part of what I've done to sort of challenge the mm-hmm. conventional wisdom. And I think part of what I have found is many of the things that we take as these foregone conclusions, right? If you say to a group of social scientists, black names come about from the 20th century, people will just nod their heads because that's what they believe. But we have to, and I think this is the different part of economic mm-hmm. history. If we think about economics as sort of testing out these economic theories, if, if the if we just take those things as given, we would never even write write this paper, right? Because mm-hmm. that, that's just taking the assumption, it's, it's established fact, and we go with it. But I think when you marry the narrative evidence, there is now this way of detecting Black names historically. And now where did they come from, right? And we're looking at the very first generation of African Americans who have been allowed to name their own children okay, yes. without the purview of, of a slave system. And we find from the very beginning a very strong and distinctive naming pattern among African-Americans. So it's a cultural perennial. Mm -hmm. It's not something that comes about from the civil rights movement. And it must say then, I think, something deeper about African-American autonomy than people have presumed to exist in the past. So I think there's a deeper level when you do this that challenges some of those notions. Um, And I think it makes it more challenging for the economics community overall. It's interesting what you found in regard to how Blacks have used names over time. My understanding is that many of the names were chosen because African-Americans were never going to be called by Mr. Smith, Mr. Johnson. They were always going to be called by their first name. And so many names were chosen, such as King, Prince, Major, because they wanted to sound like a regal name. And if you were going to be called by your first name, they wanted to be something that sounded very regal. And in addition to this, the name changes we see at post-civil rights movement, to what degree are the names we're seeing post-Reconstruction, post-civil rights movement really signs of Black empowerment or Black autonomy or this idea of embracing the idea that Black is beautiful, uh, but also trying to find a way to navigate a discriminatory world? Yeah, I I think it deepens the questions that we have to ask Mm -hmm. about it, right? So... If we now know that there's been this long history of these names, and when you mention names, King, Master was a name. Your first name is Master, right? So how do you have to call someone? Now you have to call somebody by their first name. Now you have to call them Master. It's a very different context, right? Um, Prince, Mm -hmm. um, regal-sounding names, and then biblical names. So Mm -hmm. Moses and Abraham and uh, others, which are very biblical but very different than Mm -hmm. we would think of traditional um, names that are also biblical in in their own orientation. Um, and then a third set of names that, that don't fall in either one of those sets. Um, but also what we found was we were able to reject mm-hmm. another piece of conventional wisdom, which is that African-Americans name their children disproportionately after presidents. So this would be mm-hmm. what I call the, the George Washington Carver hypothesis, yeah, right? Yeah, okay. <laughs> so, yes. and, and we do see this in the, the narrative, say Ralph Ellison has some pieces and he mentions, he said, oh, if only my parents had done, because he's who is he? He's Ralph Waldo Ellison, okay. right? <laughs> Ralph Waldo Emerson, right? So this idea of naming your children after famous individuals, we don't find that there's any racially disproportionate 
degree of doing that that's more likely among African-Americans than among whites. Mm-hmm. Now, it is the case that some of the names are a little bit different. There are very few, we find, whites who are naming their children after Abraham Lincoln in Alabama yes. uh, in the early 20th century. Yes. But we do see some, we do see similar rates of naming them, say, after Thomas Jefferson mm-hmm. or other sort of famous individuals. So, and we don't see very many whites or any naming their children Frederick Douglass. Um, but yeah. we do see similar patterns of sort of naming them after famous individuals overall. Mm-hmm. So we don't see any racial differences in naming your children after famous individuals. So mm-hmm. that we were able to actually also find a new fact that there were historical black names, but to reject Mm -hmm. another sort of piece of conventional wisdom as well, which I think is certainly um, worth mentioning. So the question is, where do these names come from? So Mm -hmm. why why do we have king and master and prince in the past? And now we have Tyrone. Mm -hmm. Number one, Tyrone is actually an Irish name. I think it's very important to establish. (laughs) So, But but second, but we wouldn't think of that name today as being Irish. If you you see Tyrone Jackson today, you don't think of someone with red hair. You're thinking of someone who's black. And so that in and of itself says it's something that's dramatic and changed. But then we have a deeper story about what are, what is the intention when you have these names adopted to people? And that, then, I, as I said, gives us deeper questions. And we don't, if we run with what we believe the names represent, we implicitly assume something about where we think the historical origins of these names are coming from. And if that is changed by the fact that these names have a much longer history, mm-hmm. then we can no longer use those conjectures. Okay. So what does it mean to name your daughter, you know, Lakeisha or Latanya today, as opposed to a historical name that would apply to uh, African-Americans in the past? So something has to be going on different mm-hmm. about the naming intention that itself is changing. And that's important now to investigate, mm-hmm. right? So it, it cannot be simply about defiance of conventional norms and making names that are mm-hmm. racially distinctive because those things existed in the past. Yes. Why have the names changed? I think now is the new question. I don't have a good answer to mm-hmm. that right now. But to know that the names have changed, we had to know that there was a different set of names in the past mm-hmm. than are being used today. So how can, I guess, the work you're doing with the names, but also the work you're doing with uh, black elected officials, how can this inform us about issues going on uh, today? I think it, it, it informs us because it tells us that we have been living not in only contemporary circumstances that need um, contemporary explanations, but that these are perennials, mm-hmm. which require a much more nuanced and I think um, historically grounded explanation that talk about their persistence over time. Mm-hmm. There have always been black names and they've changed, then that tells us something different about name intention and potentially about name effects. Mm -hmm. One thing that we found was that black names today are associated with discrimination in terms of resume audit studies and lower levels of socioeconomic. So it's highly correlated with poor outcomes. Mm Historically, we find that they're protective and have and are associated actually with lower levels of mortality. So in other words, those men who had African-American names lived longer than other African-American men. So some of these effects actually defy some of the conventional explanations Mm. that we've we've had typically. But then if you think about politicians, I think it goes to the same extent. So a lot of people believe in political science. You certainly would know this literature better than I do, 
that a lot of what we see in contemporary politics might be a backlash mm-hmm. to to black office holding. Certainly, that's what we saw in the Reconstruction era. But it tells us that we're dealing much more with much longstanding issues yeah. than things that are much more temporary. It's easy to say we're sort of like, you know, many times I say in joke that we're sort of drunks who are looking for our keys under the lamppost. It's the last place they're likely to be, but it's the first place that you should start to look, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that we do a lot of that with our analysis of racial topics. So we think about race and policing. This is a perennial issue in African-American communities. If you read, say, Ida B. Wells, one of the first crusaders and who um, died still not having a national lynching mm-hmm. law, anti-lynching law, we still don't have one yeah. <laughs> to, to this day. And yet we see these this this, this policing is, is many to many people very um, consistent with sort of lynching, these sort of ideas about lynching and law enforcement. These are not new issues. Mm-hmm. These are really perennial, American perennials. And I think it's very important for people now to think about them as being consistent and perennial. And I'll give you another example that people won't want to talk about, but probably should. You know, So Kanye West is, yeah. you know, um, running his mouth. Uh, lately and talking about slavery being a choice or things like that. You would be very surprised to see some of these same ideas coming up in the late antebellum era in defense of slavery. And you would see many of these ideas in the early Reconstruction era about how good it was Mm -hmm. for African-Americans to be in the South and how even in Fogel and Engerman's talk about the economics of slavery, much of which has been absolutely refuted Mm -hmm. um, from deeper discussions in the um, narrative sources, that there were these benefits, that there was all of this black achievement under this adversity in the slave system, and that there were these rewards for hardworking slaves. All of it Mm -hmm. has no empirical support. And I I spend a lot of time when I teach American economic history talking about this extensively. But our ignorance of these um, historical facts allows people to say these sorts of things Mm -hmm. that put us right back into a lot of these discussions that I think we should certainly have moved past um, as a nation. But we continue to go back to them because we are largely ignorant about the operation of the slave economy. Mm -hmm. We're ignorant about Reconstruction. We're ignorant about Jim Crow. And so we have people, and Kanye West is the child of a professor. Yes. An African-American professor. He should know better. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And yet he's running his mouth in absolute ignorance. Mm -hmm. And so if he is saying all of that, how can we expect other people who should know better? What should they be saying and doing? Mm -hmm. Certainly they should be saying something quite different um, than what Kanye West is, is saying to this day. And I think that's really important that we... We'll continue to have these discussions. They will continue to be important if we continue to be ignorant about our history, and particularly if we continue to be ignorant about um, our race and our and the effects of race on our political economy, mm-hmm. both historically and all the way down to the present. This is a big question, I guess. How does your work help us better understand the race problem within the U.S.? That's a really big question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I got uh, I, I think I make very, very small, oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, 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 <laughs> very, yeah. very small contributions to understanding that race problem. But I think one of the things I've been pushing for, and I, I've been challenging my economic history colleagues, and, and I want to preface this by saying there are very few African American economic historians, okay. although there is a very large literature about race and economic history. Mm-hmm. Um, put a pin in that because I think that's important for the interpretation and the way that we do this work. Yeah. I think the contribution that I have made is to say that we have a 
economic uh, history and our race and economic history. And it's important to understand that if we're talking about racial inequality today, this is not anything new. And -hmm. what we have to understand then is that we cannot discuss inequality and racial inequality today without thinking about it as being a function of a long process. We don't magically arrive at these points in time, say 2018, without thinking about there being something in the past. And it forces us to reconcile and think about everything isn't just a function of persistence from a slave experience. There's much richer and nuanced patterns. There were so many opportunities to have progress. I've always been really struck by the work of, I mentioned uh, when I was doing my Black Names work, I work with Lisa Cook and John Parman. Lisa has done some extraordinary work with Black invention and innovation. And she finds that rates of Black patenting are really low when you have lots of racial violence. And so we haven't thought about those effects Mm -hmm. and we haven't thought about the effects of racial violence and racial hatred and these other sorts of things on economic outcomes, right? Mm -hmm. And so one of the questions that we still have to wrestle with, and I hope that my work is sort of speaking to, is we pay an economic price for these racial policies, Mm -hmm. and no one talks about it in that way. We very rarely talk about it. We talk about discrimination, Mm -hmm. but we haven't really thought about is we know that we have lower levels of output in places that have racially discriminatory policies. So that means that we're willing to pay for that. Mm -hmm. So what is our willingness to pay for discrimination as a nation? And it turns out that it's a lot. And it's similar to discussions that people have when they talk about the white working class voting against their interest. Mm -hmm. It's something you hear consistently. I do not use that language uh, myself because it's not clear to me that they're voting against their interest. If we can think about their interest being very much broader and that some of their interest And some of white interest might be in the support of white supremacy. Mm -hmm. You might have to pay for that. You might have to pay for lower levels of economic output overall Mm -hmm. to maintain a racially uh, repressive regime. You're going to have to, I mean, economists say nothing is free, right? So if if you want to have a system of white supremacy, it's going to cost you something. The question is, how much is it going to cost you and are you willing to pay it? Mm -hmm. That is a way of reframing those questions. And that's, I think, the work that I try to contribute is to think about it in a new way. And instead of thinking about people are voting against their best interest, no, let's go, let's take that rational model and say people are voting for their best interest. Mm-hmm. Well, now how much are they willing to pay for that? And if it turns out that it's a lot of money that they're willing to pay for these racially restricted policies, then it says something about what it's worth to them. Mm-hmm. And that then might be a little bit more disturbing, but it certainly reorients uh, the questions that we're asking about uh, our political economy. Kind of going back to the idea of paying for racial discrimination, it, it appears to me that it is in high demand and that there is, I guess, um, an adequate supply or maybe a reduced supply, but there seems to be a very high demand. And so there are groups that are willing to pay a very high cost in order to achieve a sense of white supremacy, racial discrimination. And, it, it, and so I guess in thinking about this in terms of kind of supply demand or the issue of an equilibrium, do you believe that the supply is abundant and along with the demand, or do you believe the demand is pushing for more supply? Well, I think, um, and I'd be remiss, we're at the University of Texas yeah. uh, at Austin, so there's a very famous quote attributed to Lyndon Johnson mm-hmm. about um, willingness to pay for racial discrimination. And he says, you know, if you can simply offer whites the ability to discriminate, they'll, they'll pay you 
they'll pay you and their wages, they'll pay you in a whole lot of other ways. And so if you can hold up white supremacy, you can actually have people pay you through their political Mm. Uh, choices to maintain that sort of a system. And is it supply for it or is it demand? And that's always a question that we will always have <laughs> that it keeps economists employed, right? Yeah. Because what we have always are equilibrium outcomes, we believe, but is it price movements are we getting, uh, we have prices and quantities and we have supply and demand. Mm. Well, the supply equation and the demand equation are both about prices mm-hmm. and quantities. And so that's both in the supply and demand equation. So what's moving? Is it supply and demand? I don't know. Mm-hmm. And I think fundamentally that's what we we don't know. And I think and hopefully what history in my work tries to contribute are different sort of historical contexts, mm-hmm. which tell us that we might be on the supply dimension much more than the demand dimension or vice versa. Okay. But I think it's important to understand that both are at work, mm-hmm. but that the system might still be the same mm-hmm. fundamentally. What does the study of race or issues related to race, how does that help build the economics field. So what does it provide to the discipline? I think it provides to the discipline a a couple of different things, one of which is a challenge. And I continue to tell my economic colleagues that we need an economic theory of race. Mm -hmm. We do a lot of racial analysis. And when we try to unpack what that is, well, what should race be if we have axioms as economists that don't have race at all? Mm-hmm. in their construct. We don't have a theory of race, so it's strange to me that we do all of this racial mm-hmm. work and scholarship, and we don't have fundamentally an understanding of what race should be at a theoretical level. Certainly my social science brethren in sociology and political science and in psychology are literally light years ahead of us as mm-hmm. economists in thinking about race, theorizing about race, and attempting to understand the nuances of race. And economists are still thinking of race as, frankly, usually a a category of data analysis, Mm. right? And so we have a race variable in an equation. That's not going to cut it. I don't think that that is the way of thinking about it. I have advocated that race is really an experience. Mm -hmm. And that, I think, is... I'm a historian, so obviously it's an experience. It's a cumulative experience. But I don't think even among a lot of the economic historians, they're very comfortable with thinking about race as an experience and certainly not comfortable analyzing it as an experience. They like to think about it as a category. But what does that category mean? I have not yet received good answers to those sorts of questions that I'm posing. So I really still am pushing back against that. I'm not a theorist, Mm -hmm. but I think before we run around doing a lot of this work, we need to have some really good theoretical dimensions that we can analyze on race. So there are some people working and making progress on that. Um, William Sandy Darity, who is at Duke, Derek Hamilton, who's at the New School, are pushing on some really good work and thinking in stratification. And they are building new theories that are out there. It is beginning to bear some fruit. And I'm very, very glad that they have continued to press upon this. And they're not historians, but they are still thinking about what it means theoretically to think about race and groups and people operating in groups. Because fundamentally, economic models don't have group assignment, don't have group identities and affiliations. And so economists are really always flat-footed when we want to think about these sort of social dimensions. And I think we have to start there. We have to continue to push upon upon that. And so I'm trying to add a historical dimension, Mm -hmm. thinking about when we think about race, what does that really mean and how that's changed over time as, as experiences. And so that means also that we're going to have to have uh, a different way of thinking about empirical relations. 
not everything that is empirical is necessarily means that it's, you know, quantitative. You know, empirical evidence can be qualitative as well. That is actually empirical evidence. And I, economists don't necessarily um, have not always really seen that or at least practiced that. And I think that it's it's high time that we start doing that as well. So that's part of what I want to see come happen, happen uh, in, in our new scholarship. A nation identifies who it is by what it has done. A nation's history is critical to establishing its place in the world and the norms of its citizens. Several politicians and pundits hearken to times when the nation was at its greatest. Professor Logan and scholars like him point out that these times may have been great for some, but extremely painful for others. Further, his work notes that events that have been understood as failures had several successful elements. By demonstrating the misinterpretations of the Black experience in American history, he hopes to prevent false narratives from creating damaging situations for Black Americans and the nation. As the nation works to reconcile its identity, we must be attentive to how history can be misremembered and misinterpreted to prevent the creation of narratives that distort the true nature of our problems and in turn generate harmful solutions. Thank you for listening to The American Ingredient. I'm Eric McDaniel, a professor in the Department of Government at the University of Texas. I would like to thank Michael Heidenreich and Jacob Weiss for their assistance, along with the Department of Government at the University of Texas and the University of Texas's LEITS Development Studio.